to another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck, where hopefully theology doesn't suck. With you today, as always, is myself, Josh Patterson, and also my lovely co-host, even though he likes the Chicago Blackhawks, Marty Frederick. What is going on, Marty? Hello, I don't even want to be associated with the Blackhawks right now. I'm like winning <laughs> no games. <laughs> it's like the worst possible start to a season, you know, and I always gave you crap about the Capitals, but like... I mean, if you were just to take the sample size we have from both teams right now, I don't know, man. That's that's a real bummer. Yeah, the Caps are far superior overall. We don't need sample size, but we don't have to and get sh- into that because the Caps have been doing bad too, but they, they won. Actually, they did a cool thing, Marty. They did something that they haven't done like since I would have been able to remember. They beat the Dallas Stars in Dallas for the first time since 1995. Wow. Yeah, they could never beat Dallas for whatever reason. So how many more years was it until you were born in 1995? <laughs> You're a butt. I was born the year before 1995. Thank you. Oh, God. 1994. Got it. I'm 25 so, years old. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I mean, like just for Chicago sports in general, like, I mean, I don't even like the Cubs, but the Cubs didn't make the playoffs. The White Sox didn't make the playoffs. The Chicago Bulls look awful in the preseason <laughs> and uh the bears everyone thought the bears were going to be the team to be excited about and like i don't know that's just been like you know who even cares right now so it's a little bit of a bummer you know that's a, that's that is what it is yeah that sucks dude so maybe since we're having such a sad like you know sad for chicago people intro maybe we should liven things up and introduce our guests that we have with us today sure. what do you think Sweet. It'll be a much better conversation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Well, today uh, on the podcast, we have with us Dr. Bradley Jersak. How's it going, Brad? Well, we're having the same problems on the sports end here. Um, I jumped off the Canucks bandwagon a long time ago, and so I'm, I'm sort of as glum as you guys. I hope I don't bring you down. <laughs> No, oh, not man. at all. That, it's funny that you say that, though, because there's, so there's a question that we ask all of our guests when they come on, and normally I play it up uh, a lot, and then people get freaked out, and they're like, okay, what is it? And then I reveal, the big reveal is, who is your favorite hockey team? So that's our question Winnipeg to Jets. All right. Winnipeg Jets. I was born in Winnipeg. I was there when, when the Winnipeg Jets were still in the WHA with Bobby Hull. Oh, sweet. Um, and then I was there when... They they lost the Jets, and they moved down to Phoenix, and then and then we got the Jets back, and so Don Cherry picked them to win the Cup last year. So I was pretty disappointed when that didn't happen. But it's still better than being a Canucks fan. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> They're pretty close. It's uh, I I appreciate your answer. I respect your answer so far. Uh, so we have, you are the our third uh, guest that we have had from Canada. And our first one, Bruxy, well, you know Bruxy Cavey. Actually, I listened to an episode you did with him recently about uh, what it means to be orthodox. And he was like, well, I'm a bad Canadian because I don't like hockey. So that was sad. And then the other guy, uh, Pastor Josh Tremblay, is a Penguins fan. I was like, you live in Canada your whole life. How are you going to be a Penguins fan? So yeah. it, 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 was pretty close. it was pretty cr- close. I mean, if, if you were a hockey fan or like a, like a good, good you fan i told josh we weren't gonna invite any more canadians on the on the podcast <laughs> yeah one thing you have to do for us is give us this benefit of the doubt we'll tell you how many canadians were on the stanley cup winner every year so we go. we were cheering for you know st louis last year because they had like 16 canadians on the team so it's kind of team canada that's perfect so you're a big jonathan taves fan then hey 
I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I'm more of a goalie guy. There you okay. go. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Sweet. All right, man. Well, uh, I mean, maybe it's a surprise to you, but we didn't ask you to come speak to us today about hockey. Um, although I would absolutely love that. I could talk about hockey all day. Um, but you, you have, uh, we've written a, a whole bunch of books, but specifically, uh, we wanted to, to talk to you about, um, a recent book of yours called A More Christlike Way. Uh, but before we jumped into that, just for, uh, people who have, uh, maybe never heard of you before, can you just tell us, like, who you are, what do you do? Give us a little bit of, uh, background. Sure. Um, after, after pastoring and church planting for 20 years, uh, my wife and I stepped back from that. Her name's Eden. And I went off and did my PhD in theology. And so since I graduated from that, I've been teaching. And I'm now the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick. Awesome. Which is a modular program for anybody who wants to get their MA or Master of Ministry um, by just coming in for two weeks at a time. And I'm also the uh, one of the editors, and I do art design for Christianity Without the Religion magazine. And CWR Press, their book publisher, is the ones that did my this uh, more Christ-like way book. Oh, so I'm, I'm pretty busy uh, uh, with the magazine and with the university these days. Awesome. Great. Um, and then also, too, can you just uh, – so correct me if I'm wrong, but you would place yourself – uh, in the, the realm of Eastern Orthodoxy. Is that correct? That's kind of where you would... Yeah, that's right. Um, so I grew up Baptist, and then, okay. and then I worked for the Mennonites 10 years, and then I planted a small C charismatic church with my wife. And, and uh, But in 20, 2012, I actually officially moved over to the East Orthodox Church. I had been mentored already for 10 years by a monk named Archbishop Lazar Pahalo. Okay. So really, my Orthodox journey has been about 17 years long now. Oh, very cool. Okay, yeah, I just yeah. always think that's helpful to, to hear those kind of things um, about people as well. That way, you know, it's helpful just to, to frame a conversation. Um, sweet. All right, well, let's, uh, let's jump into your book. I know I really enjoyed it. Actually, I encountered your work first uh, through A More Christ-Like God, um, which was, was an awesome book. And then I read um, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. And so doing a, a more Christ-like way was awesome. And also have the, the other book um, in that you wrote recently. I haven't started this one yet, but Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. Um, I'm excited about that one. So, but today we're going to uh, specifically talk about a more Christ-like way. And so just for starters, uh, like why did you decide to write this book? What was the, the problem that you were trying to solve? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I began with the more Christ-like God in terms of talking about about what Jesus showed us about about God, the nature of God, the divine nature of God as radically forgiving, co-suffering, self-giving love. And then I thought, um, initially I thought, well, we're going to make this a spin-off book in terms of going from theology to practice. And it kind of is. But then I realized uh, I'm not very good at Christian practice. I think... Um, <laughs> Uh, but I think I think Christ was. And then I realized, oh, I, what's actually going on in this second book, a more Christ-like way, is now, whereas Christ had shown us what it is to be divine, in this book, he's showing us what it is to be human. So we're really looking at how the humanity of Christ becomes a prototype for, for all of humanity. And, and he's invited us to live in this way so that we would have human flourishing and... Um, 
you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men. I mean, it's sort of like that's the Jesus way. And so that's where I go in this book. So it's from the divine to the human. And Christ is the prototype for both. Awesome. Perfect. That's a solid answer. Thank you so much. Um, and so kind of what's, what's neat about your book that I really appreciated, and actually uh, Marty and I have had conversations around this on the podcast before, and it's, um, uh, as you reference in your book, it's pretty almost like a hot topic today. Uh, you start out talking about this idea of, of deconstruction and people uh, walking away from their faith or you know, tearing their faith down until it's almost nothing. Um, and this is something that um, I personally kind of went through like a deconstruction kind of thing. Uh, Marty, I don't, would you use that language, Marty, or would you not, no. not fully go that way, right? No, I wouldn't go quite that far. Okay. So, um, but also too, like being a youth pastor, so I'm a, a full-time youth pastor. I see this uh, even with my students. Um, I'm in, I'm super close to DC and I'm in, uh, with students that are in some of the best school systems in the whole country. And so they're wicked smart kids and, you know, pat answers just doesn't work for them. And so deconstruction tends to be where they fall. Um, so can you talk about that idea of, uh, deconstruction and actually you don't really like that language and you provide some helpful, better ways, in my opinion, to, to speak about that. Yeah. Um, so where I'm starting with that is there was a philosopher named Jacques Derrida back in the day, and he sort of coined the idea of deconstruction. But he didn't mean tearing down or dismantling faith. What he meant by it was we need to deconstruct our language to say, how are the words we are using affecting us? How do they smuggle in hidden meanings and, and actually form conversations? And so really what he was calling for is much more mindfulness mm-hmm. about the words we use. And that's what I'm doing with deconstruction. I'm deconstructing that word and saying we need to be more mindful with that word because it's it's become a popular term that that is it's sort of about um, the dismantling or or destruction of faith or or what happens to us when we have a faith shift. And so um, some of the ways I want to be more mindful. I, it's not that I would reject that language if it re, if it resonates with someone, but I'm mm. like, well, wait a minute. Did you choose that language or did you just kind of inherit it from a, a cultural fad? So I have more questions to ask, such as, is this something you're doing or is it something that's happening to you? Mm, like, OK, is, is deconstruction an activity you're you're em- embarking on or is it something you're enduring as your faith is being assaulted? And that's a good conversation to have. I would say another thing to ask about that is. What is being deconstructed? When you use that word, do you mean your faith or your heart or the gospel? Because then I'd want to be super slow about deconstructing those things if, if we mean tearing them down. But um, maybe they mean something else like uh, a religious belief system or mm. some um, uh, the Christian institution or the patriarchy or what. So. So what is it that's being deconstructed? I think we want to be way more precise with that. And then in the end, I just said, you know, so that's one word we could use for a faith shift. But what if I offer you a a whole lot of metaphors and then you got to pick which one actually resonated most closely? And I Mm -hmm. think that's been helpful for people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know uh, for me, uh, two that really stuck with me uh, and that I liked uh, was when you talked about like the idea of uh, restoring a painting, uh, like yeah. restoring a classic piece of art, but also uh, the story you gave about um, like a wedding dress and how, yeah. how we take care of a wedding dress. 
Um, can you maybe pick one of those that, that you prefer and, and lay that out there for, for our listeners? Sure. I'll just give a nod to the first one. First okay. of all, that we've got this masterpiece, you know, that is the gospel. Mm-hmm. And if we're going, we don't come to a masterpiece with grime on it with a knife or acid. <laughs> you very carefully take away the grime until you reveal the masterpiece. And, and that's kind of how I see um, art restoration for the gospel, the, this great ancient faith. Well, really, the wedding dress is the same metaphor. Um, I like it better because I, I actually got the art restoration one from Brian Zond, and yeah. the wedding dress <laughs> one is more personal to me. So I, I'll use the personal one. And that is how um, my daughter-in-law, she went and she is into vintage. So she ordered this gorgeous antique wedding dress that was sewn in the 1930s. And it's silk, satin, champagne, uh, and it, it fit her perfectly. But when she ordered it, it was just, uh, it had spots and wrinkles. And this is directly out of the scripture and directly out of the ancient liturgies that we have stained our wedding dress as the bride of Christ. And now we need to have all of the spots removed and all of the wrinkles uh, taken out. But um, what we found out was when, when we took her wedding dress to the local dry cleaner, he, he was so good at, at getting it back to pristine condition, but it wasn't because he was obsessed with the wrinkles or the spots. The reason was he was obsessed with preserving the fabric. That was his first concern. And so I would say, like, as I'm looking at people's faith kind of unraveling and they're, they're, they're seeing how Christianity especially is just full of spots and wrinkles and it's quite ugly, they're ready to walk away from Jesus. And I'm like, hang on a second here. There is something ancient and beautiful, a real masterpiece to be preserved. Could we... Could we get rid of the ugliness without actually abandoning faith altogether, without saying, well, I'm going to toss the gospel out, I'm going to toss Jesus out? And that's been far too cavalier, in my opinion. So I'm like, what if, you're, what if the thing we're deconstructing or restoring or cleansing is actually your faith? Then I'd want to be, I'd be, want to be generous to your faith and careful with your faith and, and be like that dry cleaner who, who brings out the beauty in it rather than like scissors or something. That would be nuts in my, and I see that happening all the time now. Yeah, no, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, um, uh, part of like the, the heart behind, uh, why Marty and I like do this podcast, um, is because we want to have conversations, you know, with people all over the theological spectrum, specifically to point them to Jesus um, with the hope and the goal and our, our main message is like cling to Jesus. Uh, you know, don't, um, you know, don't let, don't let that aspect go. Cause I mean, obviously you throw out Jesus that you don't have the Christian faith anymore. Uh, but we've seen, you know, just so much, um, pain and, and heartbreak and, uh, very much so like, I don't want to take away from anybody's, uh, experience or, or negative, um, you know, run-ins that they've had, uh, with whatever it is uh, within the the realm of Christianity, uh, but also I want to acknowledge those things, but then remind people like it's not Jesus that you're angry with, um, it's people, it's systems that have been created, uh, it's empire, whatever it might be, uh, but you know, cling to Jesus. Yeah, very good. 
Sweet. Yeah, there was a there was a there was a picture of that a meme that I had found on. <laughs> uh, it's it's actually not a meme in like the traditional sense of like making a joke out of something, um, but it it really it really actually kind of it it brought this whole that whole idea you're talking about up, Josh. I just have to I have to find it. I wasn't anticipating pulling it up, but um, so it says. Uh, it says, let's not use the church hurt me once as a perpetual excuse to live before, below our, our our potential in life. We've likely all been hurt in some way because the church is made up of flawed people, but we can do our part to make it better and brighter. It's going to take all of us. And that just kind of kind of goes along with what you're saying that, you know, I think it's Brad, like you're saying, too. I think oftentimes something happens at a church with, you know, as the church is made up of people, you know, there are flawed individuals that make mistakes and do things incorrectly and say things that hurt. Um, you know, words definitely can cut deeper. The old adage of your words could never hurt me, but like, you know, like sticks and stones may break my bones. I mean, that's not really true. I mean, all of it is, all of those can hurt. So, but, but to take the scissors and say, okay, well, so-and-so said this to me, so I'm cutting out the whole piece instead of saying, well, wait, let's find the piece that ought to be cut out or the piece that ought to be restored and fix that first. I, I really like that. So, Sweet. Awesome. Well, yeah, and then so what you do that I think is, is really helpful uh, because uh, it, it helps kind of acknowledge uh, some of the issues, some of the um, you know, spots and wrinkles uh, as we were saying to continue that metaphor, and you lay out four different uh, counterfeits or four different unchristlike ways or unchristlike things um, that you have seen within the church, and so I just wanted to see if we could uh, kind of run through those. Uh, so the first one you lay out is this idea of moralism. So why is is this idea of moralism a counterfeit? Yeah. So the idea with moralism. Uh, you, the first clue is ism. Yep. <laughs> so what happens, um, we're not saying that, that there is no such thing as Christian morality. I mean, read right. the Sermon on the Mount and you're seeing a kind you're seeing a Christian morality that we're calling for. But moralism is when you elevate those things, um, you, uh, a particular set of morals from your subculture and turn and raise them up to the, the register of faith. Mm-hmm. And, and that your Christianity, uh, the marks of your Christianity are, are whatever your subgroup um, is practicing as their do's and don'ts. Usually they're don'ts, right? And so mm-hmm. as a child, mm-hmm. for me, it was like, okay, you knew who was a Christian by whether they, you know, if they didn't smoke. And if they smoke, they're not a Christian. And, and, and so there it's like, well, there's a, that's, that might be something you want to look at is like, how does smoking affect your health? But to make that into a religious kind of litmus test for faithfulness to God and for authentic Christian faith, that's that's kind of nuts. And we do this all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of like a it's a sneakier version of legalism because um, it's sort of a even even in real churches that preach against legalism, then moralism slips in. It's right. not quite the same thing. Um, and so that was. Uh, that's really co-opted the church in many ways, and it certainly was part of my childhood, where where we had these moral litmus tests that proved how mature you were in Christ, and whether even you were an insider or an outsider. Yeah, and and you kind of uh, talk about how like moralism uh, demands obedience to laws, you know, that they themselves uh, may be arbitrary or ideological, and how moralism 
relies on fear. But then I really liked how you kind of flipped and said, but true morality works from the inside out. And you have a really uh, beautiful quote on uh, page 73 where you say, our struggle is not about defining and conforming to moralistic perfection, nor is it an abstract imputed righteousness that changes nothing, but rather we are being transformed by grace in the image of Christ whose love radiates from transfigured hearts in real life. Yeah, so just to summarize that, I'll I'll boil it really far down then, is that authentic morality is about the Holy Spirit transforming us by love Mm. from the inside. Moralism is a compelled morality from an external threat. Um, Compelled means like, you do this or else, and it's so it's external law keeping in that sense. And this is true, like um, across faiths too. You've got you've got moralistic Muslims, and then you've got Muslims who believe the all merciful Allah transforms them from the inside. So it's kind of a, a human religious condition. Okay. And so it, is it an inside out kind of faith where I'm being changed by God by rubbing up against His mercy? Or am I, am I being corralled from the outside by, by, by a list of demands in the community that I'm in or the belief system I'm bound to? Yeah. Awesome. Marty, were you about to say something? No. Nope. Oh, okay. My bad. I'm agreeing. <laughs> oh, cool. Perfect. All right. Well, uh, the next one um, is, is really interesting, and it's something that uh, we've talked about on the show before as well, and it's this idea of uh, partisan amoralism. Um, and you talk about uh, basically um, like how partisan politics and spectrum ideology kind of like swallow the church whole and then we end up giving our allegiance uh, to one of these sides. Um, and then you say, but like, wait a minute, what if that whole spectrum is a lie? Can you kind of yeah. talk about that for us? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so what we we're so embedded in this idea of Republican versus Democrat or – or left versus right, or progressive conservative, you know, so that's a spectrum. And the Mm -hmm. nature of that spectrum is to other others. In other words, to exclude them, to to live in an us-them system. And I would say that spectrum itself is the world. The world that is hostile to love of neighbor and love of enemy. It's hostile to radical hospitality. It's it's hostile to... um, uh, other voices and, and it can't doesn't have the maturity to hold difference with respect and so I'm saying we need to repent of the spectrum and this is especially a problem because everywhere on the spectrum you are given a script mm. so if they can if the world can pin you down to where you are on the political or ideological spectrum now you're handed a script and this is what you believe <laughs> and if you go off script your own tribe will just shred you and so it's also very tribalistic, and the most dangerous part of the tribalism is your is your own tribe when you break company from their way. So that's one problem all by itself. But layer onto that, assuming that 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 is Christianity, right? So so you you make the um, let's say a Republican um, talking point or a Democratic platform. Um, the object of your allegiance. So either way, right? Mm-hmm. And then then you assume that that talking point or platform is Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so a, a good example of this is I can quote scriptures 
directly from the mouth of Jesus, the rulers, without commentary, and I get told I'm on the left or I'm on the right. I get told <laughs> he must be a Republican or a Democrat. And it's very interesting that not only am I pinned to, pinned to the spectrum by quoting Jesus, but I'm treated as the opposition. In other words, what they're admitting there is that whatever Jesus is saying is actually not what we believe. <laughs> That's the other guys. Mm. What we actually believe is 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 our party platform is in opposition to the words of Jesus. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So that's why I call it partisan amoralism. That is, partisan is partisan politics. My party, my tribe, my faction, which Mm -hmm. is a, that's a fruit of the flesh in Galatians. Factions, right? My faction then is, um, it's actually now identified as Christian faith, even when it's immoral. Right. So you can point out some, immorality and that gets identified with faithful christianity even if you show even if you bring a gospel text forward and so it's like my goodness this is bananas and um so it's not about what side you're on the problem is that you believe in sides yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's so interesting you kind of talked about too like you use this metaphor of um like then we end up saying like, oh, okay, well then we must switch sides. But the problem is we're still handcuffed. I think you said we're still handcuffed then to the same exact chain link fence. We're just handcuffed to the other side of it now. Yeah, so it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. That's a good metaphor, isn't it? I, I don't even remember writing that. It's, it's I, a brilliant I, metaphor. It's very good. I'm proud yeah. of myself. <laughs> yeah. That's a thing to be proud of that. That really stuck out to me. And I, uh, Actually, I was I was uh, talking to one of my coworkers about it, and I said that, and she was like, "Oh, wow, that's so good! Like, I see that, I get that." Uh, I was doing a poor job explaining why the um, like the the spectrum itself is a lie. She like didn't get it, but when I told her that chain link fence thing, she was like, "Got it." <laughs> yeah, you see this a lot. It's sort of like I I have quite a few friends who have gone from the religious and political right. Mm-hmm. over to the religious and political left and their spirit has not changed at all. It's, mm. They're still fundamentalists. Right. And I, and, and the others could go the other way. Right. So you change sides without changing spirits because it's the spirit of the world. Right. And that's just, I feel like that's such a helpful um, metaphor. Just the, the idea of just the left and right today, especially because although it's not inherently political, as far as governmental political, um, that is where so many people fall right now. And so they have a hard time, I mean, engaging anything that talks about unity because so much of what they're hearing everywhere else is about, well, this person said that and so they're bad or this person did this so they're bad. And so I feel like that really kind of begins to permeate into our church, like our, our everyday church culture. You know, yep. well, if the pastor says this, I'm going to go forward and I'm going to tell the pastor how terrible that was. <laughs> but like, but I, I don't feel like that's always been the way it was. <laughs> so, like, I, I think there's this division that's kind of it, it's permeating from our outside culture in when our culture in should be permeating out instead. Yeah, yeah. We've been totally co-opted by it. We, yeah. We've got to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. are listening to the theology doesn't suck podcast. dude marty no that's people don't want to hear it that way man it has to be it has what? to be more enthusiastic like this 
Do you love Theology Doesn't Suck? Have you been listening to this show because you truly believe theology doesn't suck? The- no, dude. What? Dude, that's that's like, that's it's so nerdy. Like, people are like, people don't think that's genuine, man. That sounds so weird. Oh. It needs to be something like this. It needs to be like, you know, hey guys, like, I don't know if you realize, but we have a patron feed and it's, it's so awesome because like you get a lot of really cool stuff and you just like, you just have to give us some yeah, money. Yeah, but we can't just straight up be like, hey, yo, give us your money. Cause that's like, people don't want to do that either. It's disrespectful to our listeners. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Okay. So how about we do something like this? How about we do like, hey guys, it's Josh and Marty okay. from Theology Doesn't Suck podcast and you know here's the thing we love doing this podcast but you know as you probably know it takes a lot of effort and like we've got an awesome guy behind the scenes named matt who does like all of our awesome editing and all that stuff and you know it takes equipment and time and so like you know one of the things that we love about today's day and age is that there could be people out there that love our show so much that you just want to support us and so Josh, we started this awesome patron feed, and like, Josh, how, how can they find it? Like, what, what kind of stuff should they look oh, for? Well, yeah, and then we, we, well, we could tell them then, like, hey, go to patreon.com slash theology doesn't suck, and whereas for as little as $1 a month, right, you can become a patron, uh, and we have some different, you know, we could tell them about the different tiers, you know, where, where some tiers gives you access to a, a Facebook group specifically for patrons that allows you to do things like submit questions to be asked on episodes, uh, submit questions for bonus content, which, hey, bonus content is a part of another tier, some bonus episodes that are, you know, close to the public. So we could tell them those kind of things, right? Yeah, and and one of the things we could do, which would be really cool, Josh, is like every once in a while, just because we're really good people, we could like send them stuff either digitally or like through actual mail. That's kind of cool. Like, you know, like I play in a band. So like, what if we come up with a CD and like we've got a CD and I just want to send it to oh, yeah, or something, you know, like, you know, like that's another cool idea. So like, you know, maybe that could be like some of the higher tiers. So like they would, you know, they would never know that something cool was coming, but then like, Hey, surprise, this is coming to you. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. And like, we could say like Christmas cards, cute stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That, that'd be great. How about, all right, well Uh, then how about we just tell people that and, uh, yeah, hopefully they go to patreon.com slash theology doesn't suck and, uh, join our, you know, theology doesn't suck community. Uh, Josh, I think, I think this is a good way for us to do this. So I think, okay, let's record this and wait. Dude, I've been recording this whole oh, time. Oh, yeah, me too. Let, oh, all right, how about this? Let's just send this to Matt, and uh, we'll just go with it. Yeah. All right, I'm great. In. Thanks, guys. We love you. Back to the show. And we kind of touched on it. Another thing that you brought up was uh, retributive uh, factionalism. We talked about the whole idea of factions and um, all that kind of stuff. But then uh, kind of um, like it, it goes even further out into this idea of then nationalism and civil religion, uh, which I thought you did a, a very good job uh, talking about as well. Can you just hit on that briefly for us? Sure. Um, so uh, when when some authors, let, let's say Brian's on, when he talks about nationalism, he's really yep. talking about American nationalism, right? Yes. Um, so I thought I'm going to nuance that a little bit further and, and talk about, about how patriotism is to nation states or to states. Okay like to your federal government or whatever, right. to the country. Right. 
So patriotism is for your country. Nationalism historically has been about people groups. Mm-hmm. So that's why white, you know, white nationalism, or let's say um, for for Hitler, it was German nationalism didn't mean the country of Germany. It meant right. Germanic peoples across these different nations that he had to then conquer. Right. And so when when nationalism co-opts Christianity, you're just going to have a new kind of segregation again. And um, and and you'll actually take sides again against the other. So that's a bit about nationalism. And then with civil religion, um, there's this idea that that Christ, that America was started out as a Christian nation, which mm-hmm. isn't actually true. I would right. say um, the first era of American history, sort of the faith connected to the nation was civil religion, which isn't specifically Christian. You could be a deist, believing that there's a, a general universal God who has created natural law and all of that. And that's where a lot of the founders were at. Mm-hmm. It's only later when you had the revivals under Jonathan Edwards and these kind of guys that that you, you begin to, to have um, more of a Christian culture to the nation. So, mm-hmm. um, but here's the problem. Um, <laughs> both are problematic. <laughs> the idea is when America itself, I'll use that as one example. This would sure. also be true in Russia, you know, when the nation itself becomes a religion. And so um, that you've got your hymnology of America, you've got your your sacraments, you've got Mm -hmm. all of these sacred objects and sacred rites, and and they become their own faith system. And then you put a thin veneer of Christ talk over top of it, and that's how you hook in the church, too. And Mm -hmm. and I'm wanting to say it's like, wow, like— we, we need to just really look at how we blended um, our, our faith with, with our national identities and with the practices in it, which is like really disturbing if you've ever attended a governor's prayer breakfast and you see a kind of syncretism between um, uh, American, uh, like let's say the flag and the anthem and the marching and the military with the prayer and the Bible reading, and it's all blended in. And it, it's not so obvious to us because mm-hmm. if we go to Haiti and we look at how they've blended voodoo and Christianity, you'd go, oh, that's syncretism. But we don't see how we do that in, in, um, w- w- with, with our countries. Hmm. Um, now, I, Canada has other more subtle ways of doing this. <laughs> okay. So I'm not trying to get us off the hook, but in our case, it's, it's secularism. So that's okay. not the same Oh, Canada isn't a civil religion. It's a it's a it's a secular ideology, and so it has its own issues. But I was trying to re- reach out to target groups in the states about about the way that just watch watch in what ways America itself is is a religious entity, mm-hmm. and then be careful that doesn't permeate your your own worship. You know, uh, Brian talks about this time he was in a mega church, and there's th- thousands of people with their eyes closed, their hands up in charismatic worship swaying. But what they're singing is, is I'm proud to be an American, where at least I don't <laughs> free. And up on the big screen is F-15s flying across the big screen. And he's like, oh, my goodness. Okay, so which religion is this then? Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm talking about. Mm. Meanwhile, there are many, many, many churches in, 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 our, in our countries that, that are faithful and don't engage in that. But it was one example of a false way that we need to keep our eyes open to. 
That's yeah. not going to happen as me as a worship pastor, by the way. <laughs> I, I'll, 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 I'll sooner walk away than I'll, than I'll put F-15s up and play I'm Proud to Be an American. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Marty. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you wrapped up that section so nicely, too, because you said, again, the Jesus, the Jesus way doesn't require us to hate our nation. So it's not saying, like, we have to hate everybody. But, and this is the important thing, the kingdom of Christ holds first claim to our allegiance. And uh, a little bit earlier, you said Christ's gospel, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, comes with an implicit exhortation to turn from all counter, uh, counterfeit ways of uh, pervading idolatries, including nationalism and uh, civil religion. So I just, I thought that was super helpful. Um, that was really great. We've done, uh, we did a conversation with Brian about that. Um, I guess it was almost a month ago now, maybe a little bit longer. That, that was yeah. pretty cool. So I really liked the, the nuance though that you brought to it, like you were talking about. I, f- I found it to be very helpful. And so uh, now we've kind of uh, like hit the, the four big counterfeits that you pointed out. Um, but you lay out really nicely and beautifully seven facets of a more beautiful faith. And so I thought maybe we could just uh, go through each one uh, quickly, give like the uh, like elevator pitch, so to speak, of each one. Um, so we kind of know what's, what's going down. And uh, then we'll go from there. So the, the first one that you talked about uh, was radical self-giving. And you talked a lot about this idea of uh, privilege um, in that section. So what is it about radical self-giving that is a more beautiful facet of our faith or should be? Okay, so sure. I'm, what I'm doing there is I'm riffing off of, of this idea that I mentioned in More Christ-Like God about kenosis, mm-hmm. that Christ emptied himself in Philippians 2 and, and became a servant, uh, took the form of a servant to reveal that God has always been a self-giving lover. And so then if God himself is is about self-giving love uh what does that mean does it mean he became less than god no he didn't become less than god but in becoming human he never ceased to be fully god but what he did do is he set aside privilege and then i compare that with um the foot washing where Mm. christ acts out his self-giving love in terms of um uh, you know, he, that he stoops down and he washes their feet. But then he also says this, um, do, you, do you see what I've done for you? And, and I want you to do this for each other. In other words, what, what, it is, what is it to, to be uh, self-giving in our love for, for the other? And, and how, how would that play out in the world? And so even in Philippians 2, when he's giving this amazing Christological hymn, mm-hmm. um, Paul brings up to him for a reason, and that is, he says, have this attitude that was in Christ. So I want, we're meant to emulate the self-giving love of Christ. And so um, uh, in the book, what I do is I I say, look at, first of all, he uses privilege for the other. Mm -hmm. Then he sets aside privilege for the other. And then, in fact, he assumes real disadvantage for the Mm -hmm. other, even to the point of death on a cross. And what, what could this mean for us as Christ followers. Um, what would it be like, let's say, as a, as a male to use my privilege to carve out space for women to be able to speak without having, you know, uh, to, to fight for that themselves? What if my, you know, so when I planted a church and I, or with my friend Brian, after 10 years, my wife stepped in and what we had done is we created a culture 
where she could step into that lead role without it being an issue of women in ministry at all. Mm. She didn't even have to think about that. Well, we don't always get that right, but that was one time when I'm like, okay, this is how we do it. We use privilege to make space for the other. And then, in fact, we, we, we step back to the point where they're empowered um, without being dependent on me. So that, that would be one example of, of using privilege than setting aside privilege. And then you can think of people like um, who've actually, for the sake of the poor, actually became poor, mm-hmm. like Christ did. To lift up the poor, mm-hmm. and uh, that that'd be self. That's what I meant by self giving or setting aside privilege. Yeah, that's so beautiful, and I I really liked how um, you talked about kenosis too. Because sometimes uh, when people throw that word around, uh, people get afraid. Like I know Marty and I have had conversations before uh, with somebody who like whenever someone uses the word kenosis, that's like a, oh like a scary buzzword to them. And then they back off because they think they somehow think what you're saying is that Jesus is not God or something like that. So I really liked uh, how you talked about that. Jesus didn't, you know, become less than God. He didn't give up his divinity, but um, it was just all giving, you know, uh, others empowering love. So I thought that was really helpful. Um, and also, I like too how you how you talked about that. Uh, like this really stood out to me personally, uh, where you talk about how Jesus. Uh, loved everybody and, and took his way to the end. You said um, that he loves them all in this moment and right to the end, to the end, the telos, which is a word that speaks of completion and fulfillment. And that was just really beautiful to me. I hadn't, um, I hadn't thought about using that, which is stupid, that word telos uh, as end there, completion. And uh, so that was really, really helpful. <clears throat> And so then the, the next facet uh, that you hit on in your book is this idea of, of space for all, uh, exercising radical hospitality. So can you tell us about yeah. that a little bit? Sure. Um, so uh, Christ's practice um, and his preaching both really involved seeing the banqueting table of God as a metaphor for the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so um, you see him at a lot more dinner meals than you see him in synagogues. Yeah. And you see him, um, you see him talking about the great banqueting table of God as this radically inclusive place that that is calling. So that God is hospitable, that God in Christ is hospitable, and that He's calling us to be hospitable um, to those who aren't like us. Now, one of the twists in that chapter is that um, I contrast Pharisees and and the sinners. And for us, it's so easy now to think, you know, we've heard it all our lives. Well, you're supposed to invite the sinners, the people that aren't like you. (laughs) But but then we just are like, but we won't invite the Pharisees. (laughs) Right. So now we've we've become the Pharisees in our exclusion of the Pharisees. And what you notice in Jesus is at a lot of these meals, he's not just eating with the sinners. He's eating with the Pharisees, too. And he's going Mm -hmm. to the tax collector's house for dinner, but then he's going to the Pharisee's house for dinner. And he's constantly setting us in front of uh, people um, who aren't aren't like us. And so I just had to confess there. It's like there's been a there's been times when I, I not times. It's like I continually have those I want at my table and I continually can tell name people. It's like I would never want to eat with that person or have, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is so infectious. But what Jesus says is invite them in. Go out and bring them in. And in fact, if you need to, compel them to come in because they won't 
they won't think they're welcome. And you're going to have to say, you are welcome. And mm-hmm. I want to be part of welcoming you. But whether it's, uh, so it's just a sign of my own, my own enduring problems with my own factionalism sure. where it's like, yeah, I can, I've, I, I can eat with the homeless now, but will I eat with a Calvinist? Oh, damn it. <laughs> you know? um, so there, I've done it again, you know, and I, I, I'm really saying we, we're just going to have to, we're going to have to do better than that and see how even in the prodigal son story, the point of the, the point of the prodigal son story was not to invite the younger son in. The punchline is that the father goes out and he's inviting the older son in to celebrate. And mm-hmm. guess who Jesus is telling the parable to? <laughs> he's telling it to Pharisees and calling. He doesn't have to say, oh, we need to go get the sinners. They're already in. He's saying, I want you to come in too and celebrate with us. And I'm like, I've often not done that. Once the so-called sinners are in, I'm happy. And I'm also just as happy to leave the religious people out. And he's like, no, that's not what we're doing here. That's not the project, Brad, you know? So this is a good example where you can see how my my book becomes confessional. I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about where I've arrived. I'm talking about where Jesus is going and what he's inviting us to. Yeah, that's one thing uh, too, Brad, genuinely that I really appreciate about your writing is your openness and honesty with these kind of things. It's almost just like reading your book is almost like doing what we're doing right now, like having a conversation with you um, about honest struggles in life. And this this hospitality point really, really uh, stood out to me a lot um, for the exact reason and struggles that you're talking about now. Um, But also... We had, uh, and then, you know, after reading this, we had um, a guest speaker come in to our church recently, and she talked about biblical hospitality and how it's different than just like inviting people in, but it's allowing them to shape and become a part of what you're doing. And Wow, that's good. Yeah, and she used this, this really cool metaphor of like, do you remember being a little kid, or maybe if you're like me and you're still a little kid at heart? When you would make like a like a little fort out of like pillows and blankets with your friends, you know, in the living room kind of thing. And she said the difference between like just the world's idea of hospitality and biblical hospitality, the world might say, okay, well, like let your friend come in and they can come inside your fort with you. Uh, but biblical hospitality is saying, no, when your friend comes, their blanket and their pillow get to now be included in the fort. And it changes what the fort looks like and how the fort, you know, it, it brings a transformation about. Um, so they bring something to the table, too. And I just think that's such a, a beautiful idea and picture. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. one of the things, too, Brad, just in that, I mean, I, th- I think you see that in other cultures. I think you see that biblical idea of hospitality um, in, in other cultures that aren't American um, <laughs> in, a, in a much better way. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I just think of Latin American cultures where that's a much that's a, like the idea of someone just coming in and joining and that not necessarily being, oh, well, you're the Pharisee, so you, you're not welcome. You know, but I think, you know, just Mexico, for instance, is a place that I've been to a couple of times. And that's, you know, it doesn't really necessarily matter who you are, but they, they want to welcome you and they want to know who you are. Uh, I went to um, Arizona in slash, slash New Mexico about a month and a half ago and uh, met with some Navajo people. And I found that uh, for them. They don't really, I mean, for them, it, it, it matters less what you think you can come in and do for like Navajo Nation and more that you just know who they are and kind of understand them. Um, and I had I had better conversations around hearing uh, how someone met Jesus for the first time 
than I had talking about how I wanted to come in and bring my church and help them, um, which it will lead to that. But the conversation and that hospitality and that you know welcoming was was really the precursor and really what what all relationships ought to be based on I think anyway so that that was I liked that a lot yeah and then just to to wrap up this point um, it, oops I just lost my space you had a really beautiful uh, line that kind of summed up the whole idea of of hospitality that I wanted to share with um, our listeners. But I might have lost it. So now they're just going to have to go out and buy your book, which is what they, they should do anyway. So we'll move on from there. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk a little bit um, about radical, uh, radical unity. Um, and you kind of lay out some like false, false senses of unity. And, and really, um, you use this idea a lot of to be a Christian is to turn towards love. And whenever we turn away from love, then we're in turn also turning away from God. Yep. Yeah, that's that's that. <laughs> um, uh, I, yeah. <laughs> just to tell you about like my experience of writing that chapter. Okay, um, I wrote it in two phases. Okay, uh, the first phase, the first draft was just really glum because I could see very clearly what Christ is calling us to, especially in John seventeen in his high priestly prayer. We are getting like the expressed will of God through Jesus Christ in this intimate conversation with his father. And he's praying that we would be one as he and his father were one. And then I just observed like the tens of thousands of denominations. We're, we're forming two new denominations per week, not wow. churches, whole new denominations, two new ones a week since Martin Luther. That's like crazy. And That's then insane. I hear these awful <laughs> scripts about how, well, we can't be united with these other kinds of Christians because that's false unity and all of that stuff. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, no, mm-hmm. we are in direct defiance against Jesus Christ in his overtly explained will about this thing. And that's how I ended the chapter. And then what happened was um, right right about that time is when there was that awful, um, the awful massacre in New Zealand mm-hmm. of the Muslim worshipers. Mm. And I saw a miracle happening there. I saw Christians and Muslims and Jews gathering around each other, protecting each other's mosques and synagogues and churches across the world. And I thought, okay, here's a little sign of hope that even transcends the Christian um, subculture mm-hmm. that got three major religions who all, um, claim to worship and pray to the God of Abraham. Now, are we going to kill each other or are we going to come to that, to that God and, and, and learn how to love one another? And I happen to be friends with, uh, with Safi Kaskas, who's a, a tra- he's a Muslim and he's translated the Quran, um, into English. And, and his response was just so Christ-like and that he's like, in, in light of these attacks, we will not respond with, to hate with hate, we're going to respond by following the Jesus way of peacemaking. And he's like explicitly looking to Jesus. And I, I actually invited him on to Clarion Journal uh, to do a Muslim's commentary on the Beatitudes of Jesus. And he's like, oh, I'd love So I, I left. <laughs> My second draft was a lot more hopeful. I'm like, yeah. okay, I know I have a handle I can grab onto now. I'm going to go be a peacemaker in the world as a voice for unity. And I'm going to push back at, at these notions of disunity as if that were faithfulness. That's just 
baloney, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Is that, um, is that commentary that he did on the Beatitudes, is that available to the public? Like, well, I, can I link that? Yeah, um, we'll be able to get that. It, so, it, yeah, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's an article where he does commentary on it, and it's on clarionjournal.com, Clarion and Journal. Okay. I, I will get you to it. Okay, cool. I sh- that's a really cool thing. I want to be able to link that to people in, in the show notes. Um, and also, too, just because uh, before we came on, we talked about only taking an hour of your time, and there's no way that we can uh, hit on all the points in your in your book in an hour. So out of a radical recovery, peacemaking, surrender, and compassion, is there one that you are most compassionate about? Or <laughs> to, to st- I didn't mean to do that. Is there one that you like the best that um, – you would just like to, to leave us with kind of as, as your parting words so we can be respectful of your time? You know, I, I do have a bit more time. If you need 20 minutes, I have 20 minutes for you. But um, I also want to be respectful of your time. <laughs> no, we're, dude, we're good. We're, Marty and I are off today. That's why we record right. on Mondays. So. <laughs> right. I think what we could do, though, is uh, I want to combine a couple of them. Yeah, go for it. So um, one of the... Let's see, facet three mm-hmm. was about radical unity. Now, if we talk about facet four, radical recovery, uh, take up your cross, what I'm doing there is I'm saying I'm part of the 12-step recovery movement. I really am into, you know, AA, NA, SAA. All of these are incredible programs of recovery because they're not moralistic. What The 12-step recovery program is all about surrendering your life and will over to the care of a loving God. That's mm-hmm. the whole point that the path to recovery is surrender to uh, moving from self-will into surrender and not towards some religious system, but towards a, a, a notion or an image of God that is loving, caring, forgiving, personal, and responsive. And in my mind, that's very Christ, a Christ-like God, right? <laughs> so what I've done with that is I've said, and I actually got this from a guy who's not a Christian, but he's in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he, he says, he says that the Sermon on the Mount is the original recovery program, mm. moving you self-will to surrender, um, taking you through like, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, that is a rejection of self-will. It is a bankrupting of our ego. And when we say no to our ego and, and to, to willfulness, then we can say yes to God and his love and to his yeah. care. So I'm, I'm just watch how in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ is directing us step by step to letting go of ego and saying yes to, uh, to trusting in God the Father. So that's, yeah. that's in a sense, my, um, my chapter on surrender is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. extensively commentary in the sermon out. Um, now, now I, I build into that uh, two things, um, facet five and six. Um, uh-huh. I build in the part that comes from the, from the Sermon on the Mount, radical peacemaking and radical forgiveness. Yep. And then I move from there into facet, uh, to facet six, which is, um, what's facet six? Radical surrender. Rest radical weary. surrender. Right. So this is all one piece for me. Yeah, and this they all is build also, off. It was very confessional in that sense. So we've got the radical peacemaking and Christ's call to peace, peacemakers in the world. And I just look at how how naive violence has been as a solution. I'm often told that, like, 
nonviolence is naive. I've even been, I've even quoted from the Sermon on the Mount, and a Christian has told me, you are naive and dangerous for believing that. I'm like, <laughs> and you have just rejected the scriptures, you know. That, and so, uh, but I had to admit, you know, so had I. So I, mm, I walked mm-hmm. through the journey of how I went from being a, a really uh, a Christian with a with a just war theory mm-hmm. and, and a fair bit of violence in my own heart and life, and and how I Christ converted me from from um, violence to nonviolence as a response in this world. And, and he says, "Blessed are the peacemakers; uh, they're going to be called the children of God." And so that that's that's where I went with that, and just how how to how to begin loving your enemies that talk about, talk about like an intense kind of journey. <laughs> if nonviolence is not, it's not just about like, um, you know, it's not hippie Jesus stuff at all. It takes right. great courage to take up cross of forgiveness. And so I think about my friends who let's say they've, they've been ex- experienced a severe trauma and abuse and even torture. And to tell them that nonviolence is easy is ridiculous. It, for them, it's been a crucifixion, yeah. you know, and it's taken tremendous courage. And and, uh, and so in my own case, um, that had to lead to radical surrender because I was just so tired. Mm-hmm. I, I was rest for the weary. Um, my anger and my and the rage that I felt in through different time tragedy and and personal conflict um it wore me out and finally i'm like i don't know how to work through all this anger and i just heard jesus saying come to me all you're weary and heavy laden i'll give you rest mm-hmm. take my yoke on me you know and uh and so i discovered that that um kind of getting tucking in under jesus arm um and putting my ear on his heart and having an experience of his peace in my heart but actually, that, that's how you become a peacemaker. It's not by picking up your left-wing ideology or something <laughs> like that. That's right. not what it is. It, it's being transformed by the, in the inside out by the mercy of Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, that whole idea of nonviolence, um, that's one that's like been a big uh, journey for me uh, personally as well. I mean, I remember um, – so I went to Messiah College. Uh, which is uh, they're not officially affiliated, but they're pretty tied closely with the Brethren in Christ. Uh, so very Anabaptist. Um, and I remember being in a. I went to a chapel my freshman year, and uh, this person was talking about for you know forget what country it was, but they were talking about this this evil dictator that had kind of taken over, and they were you know doing all these atrocities. And I was like, I raised my hand and genuinely asked, "Oh, well, have you guys ever just tried to kill him?" And I got so many glares. <laughs> I had yet to understand. Um, see, at that point in my journey, I was at this this idea that oh, you don't need theology because I have Jesus kind of stuff. And so, like the the peacemaking thing really started to take root for me during my time at Messiah, and now like. Um, definitely embrace uh wholeheartedly an ethic of nonviolence um and you get like like you're saying you kind of get uh well you said you have friends that this is literally true but you like get crucified for it people uh think that you're just like some left wing you know nut or they say like you said that uh you're so naive or you're stupid 
when in reality, I think it's fair to say that when we look around and see how long we've tried violence to stop violence and where we're at with it now, where we're just better and better at killing, better and better at harming others, uh, we, you know, we literally create weapons to kill e- efficiently and the most people possible. Um, is it really crazy to think that there's a different way? <laughs> you know, so that's a personal right. one for me. Right. And part of the issue there is we, there's this false dichotomy. It's a binary setup that is either so as if we're saying either you kill or do nothing. It's like right. I never that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't right. say kill or do nothing. What it says is Paul says overcome evil with good. Like not just do nothing, but if we were to put the creative energy and the great minds and the trillions of dollars into nonviolent solutions um, that we put into warmongering, I think we would actually see a difference. If we had bombed Iraq with hospitals and water treatment plants, um, then ISIS would have never even come to be. You know, these things, these, we, we sow the wind and we reap the whirlwind. What if we were to sow peace and create justice? And that's, what, that's how James, the brother of Jesus, how, mm-hmm. how his commentary on blessed are the peacemakers is in James. And he mm-hmm. says, you don't, it's not that you sow violence to reap peace. It's that you sow peace to reap justice. Mm-hmm. And that, that's how he sees it. So I'm, I'm looking at – I'm also part of another school called IRPJ, the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice. Okay. And you can get a one-year certificate there all online, irpj.org. Dot org and Perfect. um and so we do and we have Pete Ann's on there we have Brian Zahn on there we have Andrew Klager on there we have a lot, a lot of your favorites are our guest lecturers on that uh, for that certificate oh. program and it's great as Josh was talking it almost it almost reminded me of our conversation with Shane Claiborne about a month ago now um, and just you know talking about that and to be honest for me the first time the and this is crazy for me to say you know I've been a Christian since 2000 since the year 2000. Um, and, uh, the first I had really heard any argument for peacemaking was when I met Josh. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, so much of from, from just the area that I grew up in where there's lots of hunters, there's sort of that conservative old Republican mentality of, you know, you know, of sort of being pro pro military pro war, um, you know, go in there and kind of, you know, eye for an eye type of mentality, forgetting the Jesus said, uh, you know, eye for an eye tooth for a tooth, but. Therefore, I tell you, <laughs> you know, and so, I mean, I think it, there's been and I'm not I'm not painting the whole area I'm from with the same brush, of course. But um, I think that was what I kind of get garnered and gathered. And I remember Josh and I had a conversation, you know, shortly after the um, there's the church in Texas. I can't remember where in Texas, where the, the guy entered with a gun and shot a bunch of people on a Sunday morning. And we were talking about, you know, hey, you know. What if we just sort of, you know, asked anyone that was concealed and carry permitted to bring their weapon to church on Sunday, um, just you know, just for that for that very reason? And Josh was very much against that mentality, uh, and I just I couldn't even understand why someone would be so against that. Uh, but then, as we've talked more, and as I've studied more, and I've seen more, it becomes more and more clear to me that the problem is not necessarily that we have bad defenses. The problem is that we haven't solved the root issue. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my <Sure>. goodness. <laughs> yeah, I I think if I remember correctly, Marty, I told our boss at the time that if they implemented an armed security force at the church, then he could expect my resignation the day that went into. I think you told me that first, and I was like, oh, wow, he's pretty serious about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. so I don't know. That's, But I'm glad that's that's a fun story. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah. So uh, I, the, other fun, the other fun story, just really quickly, is, yeah, yeah. as a teaser for the book, is, is you'll see my written correspondence with Martin Sheen, who was instrumental in my in my mm. conversion to nonviolence. And, and I call it a conversion to nonviolence, but, you know, in, in – up to 300 AD, they would have called it a, a conversion to Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> Which is perfect, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, facet seven, if, if you want to chat about that for a moment. Yeah, absolutely. Radical compassion and radical justice. Yeah, so I guess um, I'm, using, I'm using the parable of the Good Samaritan as a model mm-hmm. for the kingdom of God and, and how – how the good Samaritan, if you see it as that Christ is the good Samaritan, that he has found the half dead guy on the side of the road <laughs> and he, he anoints, he ministers to his wounds with oil and wine. That's very Eucharistic and sacramental. Mm-hmm. Then he takes that guy and he brings him to a hostel and he converts the hostel into a hospital and says, I, here's everything you need to take care of the, of the poor, half dead guys. And when I return, that's the clue, right? When mm-hmm. I return, if I owe you anything, I'll pay you back in full. But it's sort of like Christ has delivered um, uh, whatever it is to be a good Samaritan, that, that he's, he's delivered them into the care of the church, and the church is meant to be a hospital. Mm. And, um, but I do a number of these kind of parables because especially, especially in the Gospel of Luke, it's just so much of what Christ is doing is about is about the poor and the sick and caring for them. And um, there's that Gutierrez, Gutierrez quote that I, I start. It's like, you say you love the poor, name them. Yeah, and that it reminded me, the me of, <laughs> oh my goodness, isn't that harsh? Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, and I realize it's like, well, I believe, you know, in, in programs that help the poor. And I believe in, in undercutting the things that create their desperation, but like, do I know any by name? And I have some stories about names and how names have become important to me in this and, and how a, a great model for me is my friend, Linda, who's a senior lady who just, mm-hmm. she realized it's about looking in their eyes, learning their names, remembering their names and, and, um, and being filled with grace, empowered compassion. And that kind of sets up my last chapter on, on this Abba's I have a dream speech. It's really yeah. like, it's really the prophecies of Isaiah uh-huh. But what would it look like if we practiced all these facets and, and how the kingdom would come? We pray for the kingdom of come to come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like, and then Isaiah paints the picture with his visions. And it's mm-hmm. like, this, uh-huh. Jesus doesn't think this is about heaven. Jesus <laughs> established this now. And yeah. he's like, guess what? The kingdom of God is here. Right. And are you going to participate in it? And what would it be like to walk in that way? And, and I even just think about how, you know, I, I'm sure you're a nice guy, but you're not Jesus. And on the <laughs> other hand, on the other hand, if we never even got to Jesus level, if we just got to where you're at, 
if the whole world only, if we used your very low bar for the whole world, <laughs> there'd be no more wars, there'd be no more rape, mm-hmm. there'd be no more home invasions, there'd be no more child abductions, there'd be no more sex trafficking. There, like the world would be almost heavenly, even if we just got to Josh's level. <laughs> and and so I'm like, this is happening. The kingdom of God is here. At yeah. least with the three of us in this moment, he's in our midst. And it's yeah. like, wow, what if this took over the world? Um, and what if it did it like a mustard seed that grows until like every, what if every Christian said, I, I will shelter, I will, I will shelter the desperate. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. now that's harder. Well, yeah. we're raising the bar again. Well, <laughs> let's just start where we're at and, and just start naming it. It's, it. The world's a better place because the kingdom of God is in you. Because you know the king and you've taken seriously some of what it is to walk in his Jesus way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's that's such a beautiful vision. And I, I mean, that that sums up so nicely, I think, um, just your, your book as a whole and, and laying out this more uh, Christ-like way. So thank you so much, um, you know, for the, the work that you have put into that, for the, you know, I mean, I, I've never written a book, so, but I assume it takes probably a really long time. And uh, I love the bit where you talked about, uh, um, I guess it was your wife, Eden. She said, oh, great. So, like, who's going to hate us now? Because, you know, whenever you do something, uh, there's always going to be people who hate you, and that's never easy. But I think uh, standing on the side of Christ in a more Christ-like way, um, I think Jesus has something to say about when people throw stones at you for, for standing with him. I might be wrong, though. <laughs> well... Well, uh, yeah, and, and again, it's a confession book of the ways I don't stand with him, and mm-hmm, I'm, mm-hmm. but I'm trying, you know, and yeah. I'm saying I've learned a good prayer. It's Lord have mercy, mm. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. No, that's so great, man. Well, Brad, thank you so much uh, for your time. I, I really enjoyed it. And um, is there okay? So, like, aside from uh, we're gonna link some things in the show notes. Obviously, we're gonna uh, link your book. Um, is there anything else that uh, you would like us to link? Like, where can people find you on social media or a website or anything like that? Yeah, if they look up Brad Jurisak, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, but also um, they can check out our, the, the CWR magazine at ptm.org. Okay. And uh, and I also have – there's a CWR blog there that I write on sometimes. Okay. And um, I'll send you some other links, but I also have my own website, bradjurisak.com. The perfect classic stuff right yeah <laughs> perfect perfect that's so good i'll be sure to to link all of that and also i'll be sure to link uh you know to uh like amazon or whatever so people can be sure to pick up your book um but this is a has been awesome brad I, I i really enjoyed our time together hopefully uh you felt it was worth your time to chat with marty and i two random strangers <laughs> It's very enjoyable. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. Well, as far as, as for us, Marty, do you have anything uh, you need to say in, in closing? No, I think it was a great conversation. It really was. Cool. Sweet. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, as always, you can find us on uh, social media at uh, Theology Doesn't Suck. Uh, and yeah, as always, go Caps. Go Blackhawks. <laughs> Jets. Go, G- go Jets. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,